Well, it is good to worship with you this morning. I have been looking forward most in returning to Cornerstone for gathering together and worshiping together as, as a church family. You know, I, for those of you that don't know me, if you've been joining Cornerstone over the course of the summer, my name is Walt Nelson. I am the pastor here, and I've been gone for six weeks. Our family was in Costa Rica for most of the summer, and um, came back, and of course, everything here was great because we've got a great staff and great team of people here, and I knew that you guys would be in good hands with Ryan and Day leading worship and Will Ridley um, stepping up and running the show. And so I really had no concerns about things going poorly in my absence. My biggest concern was that they would go amazingly well. <laughs> and that I'd come back and you guys would be like, man, why did we wait so long for him to leave? <laughs> but um, I was asked to share just a couple of photos of what our summer has been like. We were in Costa Rica, um, which is an amazing place, an amazing country, to uh, re-commune with the Lord. Um, my uncle lives in Costa Rica. I was able to visit with him and have some really special time with my uncle. Um, while we were there, saw all kinds of stuff, crazy animals. Um, there were scarlet macaws outside of the place that we were staying at. Um, we were on beaches that were chased by white-faced capuchin monkeys. If you've ever seen A Night at the Museum and the monkey that terrorizes, uh, the, terrorizes the night watchman, in reality is actually much worse than that. Um, <laughs> and we were chased by monkeys. We had, came across, we saw four different species of monkeys, including howler monkeys, um, which they give one of the loudest sounds in nature. Um, their sound is actually used in Jurassic Park for the roar of the dinosaurs. And when you're in the jungle and one of these things starts making a sound, it sounds like Godzilla is about to break through, uh, about to break through the forest. That right there is a spontaneously, we went, went on a boat trip. That's a humpback whale that had migrated up from the South Pole. Uh, it was there. It was nursing um, its newborn calf. And just an amazing place to see the diversity of God's kingdom, his creativity, um, from beautiful waterfalls to rainforests to volcanic mud pits to exfoliate anything you wanted exfoliated, and so on and so forth. And we went there as a family for a break, um, one, to gain a level of objectivity, um, just to have some distance, and also to have some extended time of reflection with the Lord, and also for us, really, as a family, to spend time together, and as my wife would say, for my family to have um, my attention without having any other interruptions stepping into that. And so we were there. It was an incredible time. It was an incredible time for our family. Um, thankful for that opportunity and also thankful to be back and to, to worship with you. While we were there, there were a couple um, big things that happened. Yes, both Holly and I crossed the 4-0 barrier while we were away. Um, I didn't, wasn't really anticipating that to be significant, except when I came home, my scale was broken. Go figure, in the bathroom, like, just scale was broken. And then we were at two weddings last weekend and yesterday, and suddenly the parents of the bride and groom are a lot younger than they used to be. Like, it's just amazing how much younger they're getting. Also, I learned something else while I was gone. This was a bit of a surprise. Uh, last weekend, we were at a wedding in Philadelphia, and the bride was... Um, someone that Holly has gone on multiple medical mission trips with, and someone who, uh, there are several people who'd been on medical trips with many of you from our own church. And I hadn't met these people before. And so as I was meeting people, the way that I was 
they saw me and the way that they identified me is they said, oh, oh, you're the pastor that works at Sherry Wolf's church, right? I'm like, yeah, it, yeah, I, I, I'm, I serve at Sherry Wolf's church. So this morning, I'm really excited to bring God's word to the church of Sherry Wolf and um, to be back together here this morning, to be back together here this morning. <laughs> All right, over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is um, I want to share with you just a couple different experiences of the way that the gospel and the way that grace gets experienced in our lives and the ways that it shapes us and the ways that it forms us and the ways that, some ways that we should look for it and also things to keep our mind particularly focused on of how do we keep our attention fixed on the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at worship and what exactly is God calling us to do in worship. And my point this morning is not to focus so much on what worship is, but rather on what worship does to us. What it does to us as we gather together on a weekly basis to worship the Lord. I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Prophecy from Isaiah foretelling a time when the nations would come together because of the outpouring of God's Spirit that they would gather together to worship the Lord. This is what Isaiah says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the hills and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and they shall say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, this time that we have here has been appointed by you for your purposes. That you call us to worship not because you need it, but Lord, because we need it. So Lord, would you use this time to shape us, to form us, to reshape us, to reform us, to reconnect us into your story that we would live for you and experience the joy of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Consider worship. Well, what is it? It is really very easy for us to treat your Sunday morning experience, you know, you get in the car, you go to church, you talk to people, you go home, to treat it like many of our other activities. During the week, you may go to the movies, you go to school, you go on vacation, you go on a work trip, You have some sort of experience, and then you come back, and the first question that everyone asks is, well, how did it go? And that's usually followed up with, well, how did you like it? What did you get out of it? You know, was it amazing? Did you have an amazing trip? These are the questions that we ask, and it's very easy for us to ask those same questions of our experience on Sunday mornings when we worship, to gather together and say, well, we drive in the car home, well, how did you like it? What did you get out of it? Was it amazing? You know, how, how was your experience? But the Bible, if we study it, challenges us to ask a very different question about what happens in this time together. In the Hebrew and Greek, there are two different word sets that both get translated into English as worship. One of the word sets that gets translated as worship specifically refers to labor and service. Specifically, the labor and service of the priest. That people in the Old Testament would gather, they would offer sacrifices, they would slaughter their, slaughter their cattle, they would slaughter their, their lambs, their sheep. They would spend the day 
laboring, otherwise known as worshiping, translated in your English Bibles. They would spend the day worshiping in this very raw, manual, exhausting task of preparing an offering for the Lord. So if you ask somebody, one of them, did you worship God today? The question that would be assumed is, did you bring an offering? Did you go slaughter an animal? Did you guys have a barbecue picnic afterwards, which was, occurred with most of the offerings in the Old Testament? Did you worship God? Did you give God an offering? That's one group. The other group of words that gets translated as worship in our English Bibles means to bow down. It means to bend the knee, to, to fall face down before. It means to ascribe honor and worth to God. It means to give Him the praise that He is due. Actually, the word worship helps us with that. The word worship comes from the old English word worthship. W O R T H, ship. Worthship. And what was worthship? It means that you gathered together to give God his worth, to ascribe to God the worth that he is due, that others would know that it would be proclaimed how worthy God is. To be proclaimed how that God is worthy to be preached about, that he is worthy to be praised, that he is worthy to be confessed to, that he is worthy to be served. That's why again and again, the psalmists and other passages of scriptures say, O people of God, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Give God the honor that he is due. Come into his courts with thanksgiving. Give God his praise and worth. Given those two biblical usage of the word that is translated as worship, what questions should we ask then? If worship means labor and offering, and if it means ascribing to God the worth that he is due, if you ask someone in Scripture, did you worship today, how was your worship today, the question that would go through their mind is this, how did I do? Did I Give God the honor and renown that, that he deserves. Did I give God the praise that he is due? Did I come and offer to God honor and praise and worth? Did I give him a tangible offering? Did I worship him? Did I declare that he is worthy? What that means is that the critical question that we need to ask out of worship Different than any of our other experiences is not, oh, how did you like it? What did you get out of it? But the question is, how did, how did I do? How did we do in honoring God to give him the worth and honor that he is due? Now, as I mentioned, our focus this morning is not so much on what worship is, but having briefly stated what worship is, I want us to focus on what worship does to us, how worship specifically affects us. First off, worship unites us. And it reunites us. Worship unites us and it reunites us. Isaiah says this, Come, let us, notice that it's a plural, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go up to the house of God of Jacob. Let us do this. That worship is inherently a group activity. Worship is a we activity and it is not a me activity. Let me give you a different example of this. You can text your friends. You may even text your friends while you're standing next to them. But texting is not the same as having a conversation, right? And you may cry with a person on the telephone. 
But that's not the same as being present and weeping with them with your arm around them. You may, during the course of the week, be on a video conference. But everybody knows that a video conference is not the same thing as having a face-to-face meeting. You may watch a recording of a meeting that occurred, and it is definitely not the same thing as being present in the meeting. You may watch, you know, during the holidays, you may watch a fire in a fireplace on a television because you don't have one in your house. And you may watch the fire, but you cannot feel the heat. And so it may be that during the week you can listen to a recording of a sermon, but that's not preaching. It may be that you can sing songs to God at the top of your lungs and go for it, but that's not the worship that God calls us to. It may be that you can sing really loudly in your car with unabandoned, with, without, a, without concern. It may be that you can commune with God in nature, but that's not worship. As Scripture calls us to worship God and calls us to give Him the honor and praise that He is due as an activity. Why? There's many reasons, but it's because worship unites us. Worship unites us and it reunites us. The psalmist here says, or Isaiah says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. It is inherently a we activity and not a me activity. Why? Because there is something that God's Spirit does. There is something that God's Spirit does when He takes His people is that He supernaturally unites them together. That when we gather together to worship, when we gather to give God the honor and praise that He is due, there is a real connection that God brings about. At times, it's even a a palpable connection. You can actually feel it. This summer, as a family, we read the story of Brother Andrew. I know many of you in the church did as well. Um, Brother Andrew, uh, for decades, smuggled Bibles into closed countries, um, particularly into the communist bloc and then also into China and also into Muslim nations. And he shares the experience again and again through his story that he would go into a country and he would just be praying and he wouldn't know what God would have him do. And he didn't know who he was supposed to meet. He didn't have any contacts. He didn't know any Christians. And then he would say that they were, he would get out of his car and he would stand there. And within moments, he and somebody else, they would make eye contact. The other person didn't know he was coming. But they would make eye contact and they both, his term was, they both just knew. They both just knew. And the person would say to him, hey, come inside. Let's go inside this corridor. Let's go talk. And they just knew that there was this spiritual union and spiritual connection that they both knew that God had drawn them together so that they could receive a Bible. And that's what God does again and again. I think many of you experienced it this summer on the mission trips that you went on. That you go on these mission trips, you meet people who you've never, you, you, you didn't know before. And then suddenly, in a very short time, if not instantaneously, you have this profound connection this profound unity and love for them. You have this connection with people that you've never, meet, never met. How does that happen? What happens is that God unites us and worship unites us together. And it unites us with people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation. And God is working to unite people together to worship Him. And we'll do it for all eternity. But it not only unites us, those that don't know each other, but it also reunites us. 
I would say that in coming back to getting back involved in ministry at Cornerstone, probably the thing that I was most looking forward to was worshiping with you and worshiping as a church family. I was talking to Doug Lipa this past week, and he, as we were chatting, as we were, we were hanging up the phone, he said, hey, I'm really looking forward to worshiping with you and your family again. And for those of you on this side of the church, the Lipas and the Nilsons usually are one row apart, right? So we can all hear each other's off-key singing and all that, all that jazz, right? But there's an experience of worshiping together. And I said, you know what, Doug? Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. And when I look around this room, is that worship reunites us. Because you can look around this room, and there are story after story of God's mercy and grace. You see stories in this room of older saints who have lived for the Lord and have journeyed with the Lord for decades, whose bodies are failing, who maybe have survived cancer one time or two times, maybe who've survived the loss of a loved one or a child. You look around and you see stories of people, of young people who are making commitments to live for the Lord. And stories of people dealing with illness and disease, people working through heartache, friendships and joys that only came because of the unity of God's Spirit. People celebrating births and weddings and life events and living life together. And what happens is that when we, when we, when all of these stories gather together, when we worship together by the gathering and and by your very presence and our very presence, our lives, our community, by the people here corporately together, we testify. By the people gathered week in and week out, we testify that our God is good, that he is faithful, that he is merciful, that he is loving and gracious, that he is trustworthy, that he will never leave us and never abandon us and never forsake us. And week in and week out, I know that because in this room, there are people who I see that God has done that again and again and again and again. Worship unites us together. How do you improve that? How do you deepen that? Well, if your attitude is when you come to church on Sundays is to say, what am I going to get out of it? I guarantee you, your worship will be empty. It will be empty. That's not how God set this up. But rather, if you want a deeper and fuller experience of your worship, the way that it happens is by knowing others and by being known. And when you know others and are known in community, what happens is then someone says to you, let us go up to the house of the Lord, and you say, yes, let us worship together. And when you do, God unites you together. Second major thing I want to focus on this morning is that not only does worship reunite us, but worship shapes and it reshapes us. We have a challenge throughout the week of being shaped by all the influences of this world. And we have a challenge of being shaped and deformed by our own sin and our own life. And that's what sin does to us, is that sin actually deforms us. The psalmist says it clearly in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now listen to what happens to his body. Those of you who have been in this situation of unconfessed sin, you know exactly what he's talking about. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Some of you know the experience of how unconfessed sin in your life physically affects you. How it physically can distort your body. And that's what sin does to us, not only physically, but spiritually. 
It distorts us. It clouds our judgment. It perverts our growth, perverts our relationship with the Lord. We've been shaped by these things all week long. But when we come in as the people of God, when we unite together and worship him, we get reshaped. We get reshaped by God's grace. One of the ways that that happens is by being honest. And it happens by confessing our sins together as God's people. And we do that because there's, we gather together, and maybe for you during the week, this is one of the few times when you can actually stop pretending. That you can actually take the mask off. That you can know and be known and be rooted in the love of God and rooted in the love of God with people who are also rooted in the love of God. It's not uncommon for people who visit Cornerstone, for those of you that like organs and hymns and classical hymnody, this may be surprising, but it is not uncommon for people to come to Cornerstone and they'll give some feedback and they'll say, I have never been a part of such a traditional church. And they usually identify that for three couple reasons. One of them is that people say is because we actually have an order to our worship service. Another reason is because we have an extended time of prayer, such as Fred led us in this morning. And the third reason is because we actually include a confession of sin in our worship service on a, we- on a regular and nearly on a weekly basis. And they say, yeah, you actually have like this confession of sin in your worship service. And the seeker-sensitive church movement, which has taken over, has huge impacts on evangelical Christianity, has removed this from worship. They have removed the practice of confession from worship. And the reason for doing so is they say, well, you know, regular, honest uh, confession is uncomfortable. And it's not something that people would enjoy. And confession and confessing with other people, you know, that really raises difficult questions about ourselves and, and difficult questions that people maybe really don't want to deal with right then on Sunday morning. So it just gets cut out. And so in the majority of Bible-believing churches, they just no longer have confession as part of their worship service. This is actually taught. This is, there's worship books that instruct why you do this, okay? This is, not, this is a very, very common thing. Confession is just completely removed. But historic worship, namely starting with the Bible and through, has always included communal public confession. Not that what's put up on the screen is the most in-depth thing, but it is to prompt you. And it is there, it's something that we do as a community to come together honestly and to say, you know what, at least right now we can stop pretending. At least right now we can recognize who we are before God and also that God's kindness calls us to confess so that we would be forgiven, that our sin would be dealt with. This aspect of confession week after week is really crucial in the story of the gospel And it's a really crucial piece in our own lives as well. Because when we gather together, when we deal with our sins, that means that when we confess it and you gain God's pardon and you're reminded of that, that aspect of worship, it reshapes us. Because sin has been shaping you and distorting you all week long. And it is the kindness of God, not His anger, not His wrath, it is the kindness of God that calls us to confess. It calls us to do so. Why? So that our sin would be dealt with. 
So that we would be set free from the guilt and shame of our sin and reminded of that. That we would be set free from the, the false gospels that we hear all week long. These messages of self-assertion. These messages of, you know, you just need to believe in yourself. It's not really your fault. Anything that's wrong with you is someone else's fault. You're really right. You're justified. All of these self-justifications that refuse the grace of God. Because if I can justify all of my actions... I don't need God's grace. I don't need the Holy Spirit to work in my life because I'm right and I don't need anything else. And all week long, every one of us is bombarded with this storyline that says, you just believe in yourself, the storyline of self-assertion that refuses grace. But we know inherently, we inherently know that that's not right. We inherently know that there is something in us that's not, that's broken, that needs to be fixed. Something that needs to be redeemed. Jamie Smith, who is a philosopher, very insightful uh, philosopher and Christian author right now, he, in one of his books, he, has, he, he documents how not only have Christian churches removed confession out of their worship services and out of the practices of their churches, but, very interesting, what he also documents is how regularly the secular culture includes confession, and how regularly the secular culture um, espouses it and holds it up. And he gives an example from an HBO movie called True Detective with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, where Woody McConaughey is serving as this detective named Russ Cole. And in this episode, Rust is seen as the go-to interrogator in the department. Because he is able to get a confession from almost anyone. And so in a scene, he explains how he is able to get a confession from anyone. And it's deeply rooted in a philosophy of human nature that our culture more broadly is widely accepting. Just not in the church. And this is what, McCon what Rust says. How is it that you get these confessions? He says, look, everybody knows that there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. And if I know that, I can get them to confess. What happens is that each one of us knows that we're guilty. And our friends and we ourselves spend our lives, spend our weeks justifying justifying the sin in our life, justifying and saying it's not really our fault. But it is the kindness of God that calls us and Scripture commands us to gather together as the people united together to confess our sins and to hear the assurance of God's pardon. Why? So that the things that you wrestle with, that they would be dealt with. That you would be set free from the bitterness and from the lies that you have believed. That you would be set free from the guilt and shame in your own life. That it would be dealt with in this God's mercy that says, Come, come people of God. Come my children and confess your sins. That you would be set free. And that you would be reformed. And that the distortion and the corruption of sin, that it would be, you would be reformed by the grace of God. And that you would be conformed. To be more and more like Jesus Christ. Worship reshapes us. Final thing. Worship restores us and it restores us by restoring us. Isaiah says this. 
God through him. Come, let us go to the mountain of God, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, that the story of the nations are found in the one story of God. Consider this. If all it was that you needed in your life, if all you needed was a little bit of a nugget, was a little bit more of more information, then God would have given us an information manual. He would have given us an encyclopedia. He would have given an instruction, a cookbook. Here's, here's the issue. You want to have a successful life. Turn to this page. Here's the formula for a successful life. Here's the information you need. You want to have successful children. Here's what you need to do to have successful children. It would have been written as an instruction manual if that's what we most needed. But that's not what God gave us because that's not what we most need. Rather, what God gives us in his word is he gives us his story. He gives us the story that begins in creation, where God created a perfect world that was to be flourishing. People created the image of God with dignity and worth and value, but each one of us turned away from God and mankind as a whole. And so corruption entered in and distorted ourselves, distorted the entire created order, distorted all the brokenness that you see in this world and that you have in your own life. But Jesus Christ came while we were wandering in the darkness and he died on the cross and rose from the grave that we would have new life and life abundant and he begins this work of restoration in our lives and the day is coming when he will return. There is one story in scripture and the thing that we most need week in and week out is to restory our lives is that what is happening in this room is not a lot of individual stories throughout the week. Rather, there is one overarching story of what God is doing in this world. And your and my individual story is found in that greater story. And each week we gather together so that our lives would be refocused on the story of God, that the paths that we have been walking on would be returned to the Lord that we would find our way in him. Some of you live your life with a story that your parents told you. And you've been trying to live for that all your days. Some of you live your life because of a story, because of something that happened to you in your past. And you live your days trying to deal with that and trying to make sense of that. Some of you live your lives with a story that you're going to be a certain kind of person in a, certain, in a couple years. And the way that you're going to get there is by being smart enough and working hard enough and by beating everybody else. And what happens when we gather together for worship is that the Word of God teaches us His ways so that we would walk in His path. It restories us. It gathers us together to say, no, the one story that matters is not my past. It's not my dream of the future. The one story that matters is what God has done through Jesus Christ and what God is doing. And praise the Lord that my individual story is found in the greater story of what God is doing. And throughout the week, there are so many voices that help, that, that so many voices in which I get off that path and think that there's some other story that I li- should be living. But when we worship, we get restoried. When we worship, we gather together and get re-rooted in the story of God's redemption and his reconciliation and the finished work of Christ, that in Christ, that my greatest, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I am found in Christ Jesus and that I am my precious saviors. That is my hope. 
and week in and week out, worship re-stories our lives. Eugene Peterson is a pastor. He gives a beautiful picture of what happens when we rightly worship. When we gather together as the people of God, when we rightly give God the honor and praise that is due. This is his words about how his life and his view gets restoried each week. He says this. He says, I'm always in danger of losing my grip on reality. Very often, when I leave a place of worship, the first impression that I have of the so-called outside world is how small it is. Has that ever been your experience? We tend to think that the outside world is huge, that the challenges in our life are all-consuming. And he says, the first impression I have of the so-called outside world is how small it is, how puny its politics, how paltry its appetites, how squint-eyed its interests. I have just spent an hour or so with friends reorienting myself in the realities of the world, the huge sweep of salvation and the minute particularities of holiness. And I blink my eyes in disbelief that so many are willing to live in such reduced and cramped conditions as the world out there. He says, but after a few hours or days, I find myself getting used to it and going along with its assumptions. Since most of the politicians and journalists, most of the artists and entertainers, most of the stockbrokers and shoppers seem to assume that that is the only world that there is. And then some pastor or worship leader calls me back to reality and says, let us worship God. And I get to see it straight again. I get to see it whole. Worship restores us. So how do you get the most out of this experience? How do you get the most out of what God has given worship to do in our lives of reuniting us, reshaping us, and restoring us? How do we do that? Well, one, it just needs to happen that we make worship a priority. You know, in Scripture, the Sabbath was sun, sundown, Saturday night, sundown to sundown. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, because for many of us, what happens on Sunday morning was dictated by what happened on Saturday night, on how late we stayed up, how exhausted we made ourselves, and whether or not we had prepared ourselves for worship. So how do you get the most out of Sunday morning? Well, one thing is to go to bed, get sleep, prepare your heart. In the fall, our sermon series will be laid out that you can know the upcoming passages of Scripture. That you prepare your heart to say, when I'm coming Sunday morning, I'm not just coming to get and to receive, but I am coming to give God the worth and praise that he is due. The other thing that you can do to get the most out of worship is to come to worship, like the, all of it, like the whole thing. Like, I mean, to be here for, for, for all of worship. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, worship starts at 9, but sometimes I think some of us think it starts at like 9.30 or, or what have you. And so what that means is that if worship starts at 9 and the falls, it starts at 11, and you need to get your kids in childcare. it means what time do I need to get to Cornerstone? Like 8.50 or 10.50 so I have time to go put my kids in childcare so that way I can come back and actually experience the gift that God has given us in worshiping. Just a simple thing to, simple thing to do. 
But if you consider these aspects, how worship reunites us, reshapes us, and reforms us, the next time that your family member says, hey, let's get ready for worship, hey, let's get ready, we've got church tomorrow, that you would respond and say, you know what, yes, yes, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Let us go up to the house of the Lord that he would make straight our ways, that he would teach us teach us his ways, that he would make straight our paths. Yes, let us prepare our hearts and go and worship the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of worship. Lord, only you know the great extent to which we are shaped and formed throughout the week by so many competing pressures, so many competing stories, and our own sinfulness. But Lord, you have given us worship, not because you need it, but because we need it. Because we need our lives to be reunited with your people. We need our hearts and our bodies even to be reshaped and reformed. And we need the stories that animate our actions to be rooted and restoried in your one story that guides and directs our lives. So Lord, we ask that you would do that. Grow us in appreciations and grow us in bending the knee and giving you the worth and honor that you are due. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.